what I fit is what's called the adult third culture kid. Someone who has been away from their country for a very long time and feels can never fit in to belong here 100%. Once I reveal to somebody who's an immigrant that I am also an immigrant, you can see their body relax. It takes the edge off and it feels like you have somebody else who understands that everything here is just new or different. Those were the voices of Heather Neal and Hind Mary. Hind came here as a student, fully intending to return to her native Palestine. Heather was a child when her family immigrated from Ireland. Both have made lives here in the United States, yet not without a feeling of loss for their homeland. Hi, I'm John Vosey, executive producer of Words in Transit. Words in Transit is a project of New England Public Radio and is being offered in conjunction with the release of a book of the same name published by the University of Massachusetts Press. Our goal was to bring the national conversation on immigration home to our community here in western Massachusetts and to present stories of individuals that have settled in the United States from around the world. We spoke with immigrants from Asia, Africa, the Middle East, Europe, and Latin America. Here is Tema Silk, the managing director of Words in Transit, to tell us more about Heather and Hind. In 1986, As newlyweds, Hind, Mary, and her husband came from Palestine to the University of Massachusetts Amherst on Fulbright scholarships. Hind fully expected to return to her native country after completing graduate degrees. But the first uprising, or intifada, in Palestine began about a year and a half into Hind's stay in America, when she, her husband, and their young son finally returned home to visit family. The sense of oppression there was overwhelming. The couple reluctantly decided they would settle permanently in America. Hind directs the Women of Color Leadership Network at UMass Amherst. And after 30-plus years here, Western Massachusetts feels like home in many ways, but definitely not all. Here's Hind. Even in an educated setting like this one, I have been asked, how come my husband allows me to work? Or people assumed that by the virtue of being Muslims, He must be physically abusive to me, as if that's the given, as if that's everyone's experience. Every single time I open my mouth in a store or someone hears an accent, immediately, where are you from? Sometimes they try to ask it in a, like, oh, do I hear an accent? And that's a code to me that you don't belong here. Where do you belong? So with the citizenship, with my involvement in town, with my involvement in so many things, I am often reminded that you're an outsider and you're the other. And being Palestinian means I don't belong to any of the most known ethnic groups in this country. When they talk about diversity, diversity means people of African-American descent, Asian-American, Native American, and Latina, Latino. Nobody would consider Arab American or Palestinian as part of the diversity. I'm often reminded I'm not a person of color enough. According to the State Department, they forced me to check the box white, but I'm not, and I'm not treated as white. They never will. Early Arab immigrants in the early 1900s In order to become citizens, they had to force the court to accept them as white because only white people were given citizenship at the time. 
Hollywood has done so much damage of only using the stereotypes about us, which means you can never watch a movie that includes a normal Arab or Muslim who happens to be a teacher or a nurse or a judge or you only have to have them either the rich sheikh who's spending money or the womanizer or the terrorist. You can never see a normal human being and I never recognize myself in this. Even though I'm 53 years old, most of my memories are of the occupation. I was about five and a half years old when Six Day War took place in 67. At the time, my father was working as director of education. It's kind of something like superintendent, but they only had three for the whole West Bank. And he happened to reside over the largest region of the three. And immediately, the Israeli occupation forces decided that they wanted to ban textbooks from schools. And I think they had a list of about 84 books that they wanted to ban, which meant most of the textbooks. The directors of education <laughs> decided to go on strike early September, instead of when schools were supposed to open after summer vacation, they decided not to. And my father, residing over the largest one, they came and took him to jail. And he was in prison for about six weeks. The end of six weeks, my uncle was able to secure a visit to go see him. And he took me and my brother, who's a year older than me. And I remember walking into the room seeing my father and getting scared. My father had long hair, long beard, and I could not recognize him because every day of his life, my father literally shaved every single day. He wore suits, and to see him in jail in that, I can never forget the room and how he looked and how I felt. We came in 1986, and unfortunately, within maybe a year and a half, December of 87, the first Intifada, which is the uprising, started. And I guess that changed things. I still didn't think about staying in the U.S. And my parents, who never wanted to see me living abroad and wanted us to come back, were saying, not now. We went to visit for the first time in six years, in 1992. And I think that was the changing point. As Palestinians, we couldn't travel to the airport in Tel Aviv. So we, we went to Jordan. And from there, we went through the bridge to the West Bank, which they had two crossing points at the time, one for Palestinians and one for tourists. We were left to wait almost to the end. It was a Friday. And we asked, when will our turn come? We kept being told to wait, and then later a female soldier came to me and asked me to go with her. At the time, my son was sleeping on his father's shoulder, and she looked at him and said, is that your son? And I said, yes. She said, bring him with you, please. So I picked him up sleeping, and we went to a room, and she literally strip-searched me completely in front of my son. He himself, he woke up being strip-searched. And they took our shoes to be checked by laser. 
he started screaming that he wouldn't walk on the filthy floor. And I said, I would carry you. When we were done, instead of moving us forward, she sent us back to the waiting area again. Ten minutes later, she took our shoes again. By then, I've had it. So I looked at her and I said, you must be kidding me. I said it in English. And she looked at me very blankly and said, it's the rules. I said, what could we have done with our shoes when you have us under surveillance? You've had them 10 minutes earlier. They still took them. Now, the memory of being strip searched for my son, the memory of soldiers all over, had completely traumatized him. So it turned out that my son never forgot that memory, even though we tried to talk to a psychiatrist, we tried to you know, deal with it, and it came back first time in fourth grade when he was asked to write about the, the best or worst day of your life, and he talked about crossing the borders. Throughout the visit, it was really, really hard for me to see how everything had become totally different from what I knew it, and the daily life for people got to be much worse, which later on my husband and I would refer to our growing up under occupation as the honeymoon of occupation. All the difficulties we had experienced, all the things we had seen growing up under occupation tend to be much easier than what people had to endure after the first of the intifada. Especially young people and young males could not walk on the streets at night because they could be arrested or harassed for no reason. No one could leave the house without our Israeli IDs. And I would call it the ID that gave me the right to be an occupied inhabitant, not even a citizen. When I was in college, one of our peers disappeared. He was seen being arrested by the soldiers. And the Israeli authorities claimed that they released him. Nobody had ever seen him being released. And a few days later, his body was found dismembered. And I remember that guy. I've been living in this country for 29 years. The first year was in Sunderland and the last 28 in Amherst. So, of course, more than half of my life I've been in this town. On a certain level, of course, it feels home. We got married just six weeks before we came to this country. So all my married life has been in this country. At the same time, I feel like a nomad. I know there is an expression called third culture kid, which is someone who normally grows up in a culture different than their parents. But I know what I fit is what's called the adult third culture kid, someone who has been away from their country for a very long time and feels can never fit in to belong here 100% and can never belong back 100%. We are incredibly fortunate to have some amazing, amazing friends and a good support system. When I had my daughter, I remember going through the gifts and cards and phone calls congratulating us, and I was overwhelmed with the number of people who had either come to see her or you know, sent postcards or reached out to congratulate us. A very touchy moment was after September 11th. 
I cannot tell you how many phone calls and emails we received asking us, are you okay? I have a friend who's from Minnesota, but she was living in Australia at the time. She literally picked up the phone and said we had immediate reaction and hate crimes against Arabs in this area. Are you okay? When my son finished high school and we decided to have a graduation party, it was really nice to look around and see how diverse our friends were. So I feel, I feel blessed and Amherst feels like a second home. You've been listening to Hind Mary. Now we'll hear from Heather Neal. When she was a young teenager, Heather Neal moved from a childhood home in Ireland that overlooked the ocean to the lower floor of an apartment building in Spanish Harlem in Manhattan. Pressure to lose her accent and conform was intense. Over three decades, she's made her way to Greenfield, Massachusetts, and become acclimated to America. But she still misses Ireland. It's the place, she says, that fills her soul. Here's Heather. Once I reveal to somebody who's an immigrant that I am also an immigrant, you can see their body relax. It takes the edge off, and it feels like you have somebody else who understands that everything here is just new or different, despite the fact that I've been here 30-something years. We came here in 1979, and Ireland was going through a depression. My dad was here working as an artist, so he got a job designing Irish pubs in Manhattan, and he got us green cards after he got his green card. We moved from a place where I overlooked the ocean to an apartment on the lower floor of an apartment building. My dad was the super of the building. And I felt like I was the only white kid for miles. And it was, uh, it was definitely interesting. I had to acclimate very quickly. I started to lose my accent immediately. Because, you know, if you stick out, you don't want to stick out and have a funny accent. I was the type of kid that sort of just wandered around all day long during the summer or after school. It was just me and the dog wandering around on the beaches and in through fields. And, and to then all of a sudden be in this very fast-paced, jam-packed environment with all these very mature girls who have very specific ideas about what you should look like and act like. And one girl looked at the other girl and said, Mira, look at her. And uh, the other one looked at me and said, does your mother dress you? And uh, <laughs> I answered yes, because she did. <laughs> so it was, it was tough trying to fit into that. I miss Ireland. Until recently, I had traveled back every year. And my parents retired back there. And so we would go over and take care of them. And they've since passed away. But I would travel back every year. So every year, I got to fill my soul. And it would get filled the second I flew over and saw the patchwork of green. And I could walk on the cliffs and smell the air and the seaweed. And that has always helped me cope here. But recently, I don't have that. So I I find myself starting to cling to different things. And the one thing I did bring over and I keep is my tea. While I still consider myself either British or Irish, if I was to identify as a lesbian, I'd identify as an American lesbian. Coming out here, I identified with a community, 
And it was a community of people from all over the world. You know, I had Peruvian friends and African friends and Canadian and French friends, but we were all lesbians. So that made me feel very much a part of this country, of that melting pot idea. That was Heather Neal. Before Heather, we heard from Hind Mary. To see photographs of Hind and Heather and to hear all of the Words in Transit interviews, visit our website at nepr.net, where you can also learn about upcoming Words in Transit events. You can also find information about all of NEPR's podcasts at nepr.net or on iTunes. Let us know what you think about Words in Transit. Review us on iTunes or send an email to radio at nepr.net. To see additional photographs and to read transcripts of all of our interviews, see the Words in Transit book, available from the University of Massachusetts Press. Proceeds from the sale of the book benefit the Words in Transit Immigrant Scholarship Fund at Holyoke Community College. Next time on Words in Transit, Synthesis, the story of two women and how they've incorporated their native culture with their new lives in this country. I've been in this country for 50 years. Uh, the change of my attitude toward a lot of things, especially like marriage. And it seems like line between country, race, and the nationality has become very mixed now. Both places, both cultures have so many wonderful things to offer. At the same time, if you could eliminate some both ways, and that would be a great society. That's next time on Words in Transit. The managing director of Words in Transit is Temis Silk. The producer is Kathleen O'Keefe. And we had help in this podcast from Sara Redigieri. I'm John Vosey. Thank you for listening. Words in Transit is a production of New England Public Radio in collaboration with the Copeland Colloquium at Amherst College.